0: once again we welcome you back to moving forward with young voices happy to welcome the familiar voice of alexander salter back to the program he is a professor of economics among other things in fact i'm going to ask you alexander for those who are meeting you for the very first time uh, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: sure i'm an economics professor in the rawls college of business at texas tech university And I wear a number of other hats as well. I'm a senior fellow with the Sound Money Project for the American Institute for Economic Research, and I'm a senior contributor with the Young Voices Talent Organization.
0: Yeah, you do stay busy, I've noticed. And I, I follow you uh, quite regularly on social media, and I appreciate you giving us lots to think about. Really appreciated the article that we're going to be discussing today, which is, Rural Districts Have Nothing to Fear from School Choice. Now I live in, in South Central Idaho, and school choice is becoming an issue here in the Gem State, as it is in many other states. One of the most common objections is, well, this is going to harm those rural school districts if parents are allowed to choose you know, where, where they send their kids to school. You uh kind of put this myth to rest where where do we begin
1: great question and i think a lot of times when parents and school district officials make their arguments like that make arguments about school choice harming rural districts their hearts i think are in the right place but when you look at how these programs would have worked there's just no they're there it's not going to work the way they envisioned In rural districts, places where, regions where there's one high school, right? We're talking about school districts with 1,000, 2,000 kids. If we get a school choice program, are we talking about hundreds of families suddenly leaving for private schools? Of course not. There's not going to be a raft of private schools opening in these rural districts. In fact, most families in many rural districts are actually quite happy with their existing government schools. That's fine. School choice isn't about destroying the government school system. It's about complementing the government school system by giving families the resources they need to get the right educational options for their kids and for their family. And so where I really expect school choice to have a transformative impact is in urban school districts, specifically at schools where the performance of teachers and administrators is really failing children. That's going to be where the biggest bang for the buck is in terms of being able to get those kids out and get them to an educational environment that's supportive and nurturing education really can be powerful and transformative but that's why it's important that we need to fix our existing failed government school systems by having the funding follow students instead of going to existing systems and special interest groups
0: now Alex you kind of alluded to, to something that I hear very often whenever someone talks about um, you know a system that isn't performing at least it isn't performing no matter how much money is put into it it doesn't seem to perform to to the promised uh, results that, that we are told we're going to get and that is well if you want to reform this system you You must want to do away with education altogether. Uh, Do you hear this uh, objection commonly when when people are talking about school choice?
1: I hear it all the time. And if we were on video right now, you would see that I'm bald. And that's because I have (laughs) to rip out a little bit of hair every time somebody makes that objection. So now I have no hair left. It is something that we choice advocates constantly hear. There's nothing to it. We're not out to destroy the educational system. What we want to do is find some way of shaking things up so that we can actually get kids a quality education so they can be most prepared to face life's difficult outcomes. We live in a very fast paced world. Students need good educational environments to teach them the skills they need to compete and thrive in that fast-moving world. The existing system just isn't doing it. We're spending more and more and getting less and less. So ultimately what we have to do is find some way of having educational funding follow students. Parents should have control over the public education dollars allocated for their children, for those students. And yes, they should be able to take that funding and take it to a private school if there's one available. They should be able to take that funding and start homeschooling programs, co-ops, learning pods, half-day classical academies. We need a thousand educational experiments to bloom. We need to stop assuming that we can plan this system top-down and that a one-size-fits-all government school solution is going to be the right thing for all kids in all times and all places. School choice is how we get a bottom-up approach to education that makes sure that we can put kids where they can actually get the best education for them. And in many cases, let's be clear, that's going to be continuing in the existing government school system. Again, we're not out to destroy it. There are many government schools that are working well. We're looking to pair it with something that can help the communities that are underserved by the existing system.
0: It seems like school choice is more about allowing innovation to, to actually have a place and a role to play within, uh, within that uh that arena, as opposed to simply, well, we're going to do away with the government schools, and you know, it's a free for all for whatever people want to do with their kids. I, I I often hear that well, parents really don't know what's best for their kids, and that has not played very well in in certain um, election scenarios where you know politicians have come right out and said parents really shouldn't be this involved in their kids' education. I know in Virginia, for instance, that seemed to backfire big time on the the candidate who was backed by the teachers unions.
1: Absolutely, because that attitude that you just pointed out is paternalistic and undemocratic. It is not the proper attitude in a free society. Public education is for students, but the ultimate beneficiaries are the students themselves. The people that those systems are accountable to, though, are the families, are the parents, because the families are the trustees and guardians of the students. Absolutely, family should have a say in what gets taught in school. Absolutely, family should have a say in what educational options are available for their children. This idea that we should all leave it to bureaucratic experts who are completely unaccountable to the community, that's not self-governance. That's not democracy. That's technocracy. And we've seen how that's worked over the last two years. The reason that you're getting these school choice waves all over the country, not just in urban areas, but in rural areas, too, is because parents are fed up. They've had enough. They've had enough of being condescended to. They've had enough of being talked down to like they're just yokels who don't know enough to educate their children. Of course they do. Of course parents know enough that they're going to be able to get their kids a good education in reading, writing, arithmetic. Of course they know enough to make sure that their children are going to get an education that reflects the values of a self-governing republic. We need to have a little more faith in small d democracy and less faith in top-down managerial experts, because that system has not done us any good.
0: Well, something you point out in your article is oftentimes the opponents of school choice uh, have to use scare tactics to try to get people uh, to to back away from the prospect of school choice. And it's just this is just a rule of thumb I picked up over the years, but when someone is trying to make me scared, it usually means they're trying to steer me toward a conclusion that wouldn't be of my own choosing.
1: I think that that's one of the default tactics now on the other side that shows they understand how uncertain the ground is for them the first time, for the first time in a long time. There have been multiple attempts here in Texas to get school choice done over legislative sessions that got close to the finish line, but ultimately didn't make it. Now we've got an actual shot. Now we're seeing some amazing polling data. 88% of Texas Republicans, for example, are massively in favor of school choice, If you start sampling only Texas Republicans in rural districts and counties where there are less than 100,000 people living there, you know what that number does? It doesn't change at all, it stays the same. 88% of rural residents are also in favor of school choice. So really what we're seeing here is a phase change, right? We're seeing a radically new landscape for reimagining new educational possibilities. And you're absolutely right, we need to discover the best educational arrangements. And that's not going to come from a top-down system that by design is not amenable to experimentation and innovation. It's just not gonna happen with the existing monopoly government school system where students are locked in based on their zip code. We need something new and we're gonna get it in Texas. I'm optimistic.
0: What are some of the other states that we ought to be watching, especially for 2023? You mentioned 2023 could be an especially promising year legislatively within various states. Are there any in particular you're keeping your eye on?
1: I'm obviously all eyes on Texas. I'm Mm -hmm. all eyes on Austin for this upcoming legislative session because I think that we have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to get this done and get some relief and some help for students and families that have currently historically been underserved by the existing government monopoly over the school system what's really interesting is that if you look at the most rural states the top nine rural states in the union for example a lot of them already have some measure of school choice not a complete system right not anything as extensive as what arizona just did and i'm a big fan of that program by the way but you do have some system in place where students have some ability to select into a school that might be different from the one to which they're residentially assigned So I think that rather than talking about what states the school choice going to be big in, we need to focus the question more on what specific opportunities are there for innovation in this specific state. In Idaho, for example, are we talking vouchers? Are we talking educational savings accounts? Are we talking about free access to charter schools? There's a lot of different options on the table. I myself am a big fan of broad-based education savings accounts. Give the students the money write every student a check for $7,500, let them spend that at private school tuition, let them spend that on homeschooling uh, co-ops. Let's experiment and find the best ways of educating our children. But given the political realities on the ground, that might not be the best option in every state. And so I think it's going to take some particularly talented political entrepreneurship to identify among the range of feasible solutions, which ones are actually possible to implement legislatively that are going to deliver some relief to families.
0: Again, we are talking with Alex, Alexander Salter. He is a professor of economics at Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, as well as a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and a Young Voices contributor. Alex, where can people find you on social media?
1: I'm on Facebook, although my activity right now, uh, since we're, we're now in Advent, is rather light, and I try and minimize social media during Advent time.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. So happy you could join us today. We have Thomas Irwin joining us from Los Angeles. He is a Young Voices uh, contributor, as well as the founder of Elevate Equity, a nonprofit dedicated to increasing economic opportunity on the east side of Los Angeles. How's life? It's been a while since we've talked.
2: Yeah, Brian, it's great to great to be back on, um, enjoying life in East Los Angeles. Um, so uh, and, and joining here to, to come here and talk about some important issues that are affecting folks uh, here in the community.-
0: Well I think folks are hearing a lot these days about the student debt crisis. and it seems like there's no shortage of politicians lined up with, well, I have a solution and you know I mean we had student loan forgiveness and then we didn't, and now we kind of do. And that's one example. but you zero in on one of the aggravating factors of the student debt crisis, and that is superfluous grad school requirements. No, I guess I haven't been to grad school, so you're gonna to have to fill me in what what are some of those requirements and, and what makes them onerous?
2: Well, Brian, I'll start with a confession, which is that I also have not been to grad school. but I do work um, in the space. One of the things we do at at my nonprofit is try to advise people who are trying to make their way through the labor market. and this is sometimes people who have college degrees, sometimes often it's people who don't. Um, and what's very interesting about the whole conversation about student debt is that, Um, there's a whole lot of people who don't have student debt and that often gets lost in the conversation. But when you really zoom into the folks who do and why they have student debt, um, one of the biggest reasons is grad school, right? So often people think about it as an undergrad problem, right? Most, probably about 50% of young Americans go to four year um, college. It's an even smaller percentage that go to grad school, but those folks who go to grad school own about 56% of all student debt, right? So you're looking at a small minority of people who uh, contribute a lot to this problem when you look at a macro level. Uh, When you dig in, um, I think what you start to see is that a lot of folks who go to grad school, go to grad school, not necessarily because they want to learn a skill, but because the state through professional licensing requirements requires them to go to grad school to get the job that they want to get. Um, And so when you look at how much this is costing society, you really see that this is one of the root causes is these requirements for people to go to grad school to get certain jobs.
0: Okay, I know my wife as a public school teacher, struggles with this. she She has a bachelor's degree, but she's she's constantly telling me you know if i if I just would go back and get my master's, it would bump my pay up automatically, you know to to this new level. and And you had mentioned in your article uh, one of the places where this is especially apparent is a CPA shortage. Talk to me about that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so that's a great, the teacher example is a great example I set in my piece uh, requiring teachers to get a master's degree. Another is uh, that I think is actually more egregious in a lot of ways is is like you say, the CPA shortage. So um, if you wanna be a, a certified public accountant in the US, you have to pass a test. Now we can debate whether or not tests are a good way to certify people, but the advantage of tests is that they're objective, right? They look at your skills. Um, do you have the skills required to perform this job with a certain level of um, you know, competency, right? Um, So you would think, right, if you have a test uh, to get into a profession, you would think that anyone could sit for the test, right? If you can pass the test, you probably should be able to practice. Well, this isn't the case. Um, And with accountants, not only do you have to go uh, study accounting in undergrad, but you actually have to study 150 hours of college. Now, what's interesting about this is most undergrad colleges only require you to have 120 hours to graduate. So by forcing folks to have 150 hours, you're basically forcing folks to go to a year of grad school. Now, grad school is extremely expensive. That can be uh, $30,000, $40,000 just in tuition at a lot of schools. Um, And when you talk to accountants, they will say, hey, this extra year of grad school may not have actually taught me anything that I couldn't have learned in undergrad accounting. Um, and, and honestly, like we should be expecting our colleges to teach more to undergraduates so that they don't have to have grad school. Right, That's a good consumer experience. Right. Teach me what I need to know in less hours. Um, but this this idea of the 150 hour requirement is is universal. Every state in the U.S. has a 150 hour requirement for you to be certified as a public accountant. I, I would suggest that if we want folks to have less student debt and if we want there to be less. Uh, Or excuse me, more accountants. Right. Because in almost every state, there's a shortage of accountants. Just drop this requirement. Just allow people who have 120 hours, a standard college degree to sit for the test. Um, There's economic research showing this probably won't reduce the quality of accounting and it will increase the supply, which also reduces the cost to people like you and me who may need an accountant for a business that we have. So it seems like a, a just a home run from a policy perspective.
0: Yeah, you know, I hadn't considered you know the the effects of how if you artificially, you know, decrease the the amount of accountants out there, for those who are getting hired, it's going to raise the cost for for the the firms exactly. that, that want to hire them, and and for the people that they're doing work for. Um, less accountants means you know, well, scarcity means the price is going to go up.
2: So, yeah, in my my book, Brian, tax season is already painful enough. We don't need to make it more painful (laughs) by having higher costs.
0: I was going to suggest, you know, I'm not wishing any ill for the accountants, but if we just would revamp the tax code or better still do away with it, eh, maybe that would help us all. But talk to me about some of the other areas uh, where where grad school um, maybe it may be a necessity, or then again, it may just be a nice, desirable. Uh, luxury, but nonetheless, the rules are you have to do this if you want to advance in your career.
2: Yeah. So I think one of the areas that we need to talk about is that of the medical field and specifically doctors. So to be to start off, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ask doctors to go to medical school. I think if any profession, we want people to have skills training, it's probably doctors, right? We don't want people operating on us without proper training. But it's important to put it in context. So of all countries in the OECD, so these are Western developed wealthy nations, the US actually requires the most training of any uh, country in that block. So we require doctors between undergrad, medical school, and residency to do 11 years of training, sometimes more, right, if folks do additional training on top of that, uh, before they start practicing as full doctors. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that the US also has, the lowest per capita rate of doctors of almost any country in the OECD. The only other country that is worse to us is Canada. And Canada, interesting enough, also requires the same amount of training for doctors. So I just put forward, there's lots of examples of countries, uh, again, wealthy countries. Uh, Sweden is a great example. So Sweden requires th- more, le- less than three years of um, uh, residency. They require, I think it's a total of seven years for doctors to be trained, compared convert to eleven. A lot of countries in Europe um, do a consolidated degree where you can get a undergrad degree and a medical school degree all in one go. It usually lasts five or six years. And then you go on to training, which might take two or three years, and boom, you're ready to be a doctor. Um, And and it's no coincidence that these countries that have these consolidated requirements have have much more doctors than the U.S. does.
0: Okay, two quick questions. First of all, where did the idea of more school or at least graduate school is is a good idea come from? Was this something that uh, I did? Did education lobbyists push this or did somebody else, uh, you know, bring this idea forward that we need to to make sure that they're going and and getting some graduate school?
2: That's a great question, Brian. I I think I'll give you two reasons. One is maybe a charitable interpretation and the other is maybe more cynical interpretation. So the charitable interpretation is that consumers... Um, often go into various markets, not necessarily knowing uh, what quality the provider they have, right? So I'm not an expert on medicine. I I don't have any ability to know necessarily, is my doctor competent? And this is definitely especially true say 30 or 40 years ago. I think this is starting to change with the advent of things like Yelp, um, ZocDoc, Google reviews, right? There's a lot more ways you as a consumer these days can get information on providers, but I still think there is a place for the state to kind of ensure a minimum level of competency so you don't have people harmed by fly by night, you know, um, snake oil salesmen. right? In the medical field, to give a specific example. Um, I think the more cynical interpretation is that it's good for people who are practicing In these fields to decrease the supply of new folks coming in Uh, because it raises prices, it raises wages, and it's a way that you can recoup those uh, costs that you incurred going to grad school. Um, So it's I think it's a way that that uh, lawyers, doctors, accountants who are some of the most wealthy people in our society can just raise their wages.
0: Okay, and unfortunately, we're up against the clock here. You mentioned in your article too that uh, you know some people have learned, some companies have learned in the private labor market, like Apple and Google and Tesla, they've actually kind of rolled back the requirements of of what they expect of of uh, their applicants. Uh, can in thirty seconds, can you tell us why they would do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, what you're seeing is that it, when you have companies, the tech sector is a good example of this. The tech sector is not regulated. Um, there aren't. Necessary requirements to get in. And companies are increasingly giving folks who don't even have an undergrad degree a chance because they see that they have the skills and they have the competency. So, what you're seeing is that when you let the market solve this problem, the market is pushing towards skills based competency, not education based competency.
0: Okay, again, we are talking with Thomas Irwin. Thomas, where can people follow you on social media?
2: Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter, um, Watts still exists. Uh, I'm Coach Thomas, LA. Um, you can also follow me on Substack. I have a blog, uh, which is called Thomas Pontifications. Um, and you can read me in, in local publications here in LA.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to welcome Torben Halbe back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor, a nonfiction author, and liberty activist based in Berlin, Germany. Torben, great to catch up with you once again.
3: Glad to be here, glad to be here again. Hi.
0: I'm I'm happy to talk with you and I'm I'm really happy that we're going to be discussing carbon neutrality. I am hearing this term a lot, and I have to admit I really I'm not sure what it means. I'm sure it has to do with, you know, let's we've got to protect the environment. But does it also mean that I have to pay more for, you know, the cost of heating my home or to to drive my car or for everything else? Tell me what what is meant by carbon neutrality and then let's talk about why it's a pipe dream.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, First of all, it's kind of uh, a simplification to call it carbon neutrality, but a lot of environmentalists do so. And it's a simplification because what they actually mean is greenhouse gas neutrality. And of course, carbon dioxide is just uh, one greenhouse gas. Um, There's also methane, for example. But still... um, I guess greenhouse gas neutrality is a mouthful, so carbon neutrality is what it is now. And what it means is that all carbon emissions caused by, well, human activity, but by industry, uh, by agriculture, everything, traffic too, would be compensated by, uh, you know, getting carbon back out of the air um to store it in some form and in the united states with the uh, inflation reduction act which i think will not reduce inflation but you know it, it, it's uh, it's also an, an uh, environmentalist package and it uh, includes some carbon capture and storage which would mean technical methods to capture carbon and and and, and uh store it away But in Europe, uh, the environmentalists don't like these technical methods. So, in Europe, when they speak of carbon neutrality, they mean that the forests and agriculture should store all the excess carbon. And all of that is supposed to happen by 2050.
0: So, what what will the result be by 2050? Does that mean by 2050, we are no longer emitting any greenhouse gases, or we've completely pulled away from fossil fuels? I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly do they mean by uh, meeting that goal of carbon neutrality?
3: Well, the idea to not emit any greenhouse gases is even more utopian. Some want that, but normally for even later than 2050. Uh, by 2050, it's just, you know, they have calculated in, uh, like, a sort of planned economy way. The calculated for all the different sectors of industries, at least in Europe, how reduction is, in, from their point of view, that is up to optimistic. Um, and those, the, the amount of carbon or other greenhouse gases that they couldn't calculate away, basically, they then dump on so-called carbon sinks. Which would mean, for example, in, in Europe, that the forests would have to store a lot of carbon by 2050. And it's very unclear whether they will be able to do that. Interesting. So, 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 so even if the calculations, so even if you somehow achieve all the reductions in all the industries uh, that they envision, uh, the, the things will be the other issue.
0: You know... Um- I, I have to to wonder. You point out in your article, there's nothing inherently bad about the idea, you know, the goal of carbon neutrality, but the way that uh, it's being pursued right now is is very harmful. Uh, for instance, um, I know that in in Europe, you have seen. Uh, Political leaders have to step away from what well, we were going to close down these coal plants. We were going to, uh, you know, go to more green types of energy, and they've they've since had to kind of step back away from that and say, okay, maybe maybe we'll do that uh, in in a little while. Um, is there a better way to to move toward it, or is it is it simply is this just a, utop- a utopian dream that that cannot be realized?
3: Well, you know, Thomas Sowell, the American economist. He said that um, the intellectuals nowadays think they can identify problems and then they can come up with solutions. And he said that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And, well, a lot of people have identified uh, global warming as a problem. And, well, I think they are right to a degree. But then they, they, they think there could be a perfect solution, like... Uh, carbon neutrality and they don't see all the trade-offs because as so well said there are no solutions only trade-offs and trade-offs if you go for carbon neutrality in this really hard way where you say it has to be there by 2050 you will ruin a lot of industries you will raise a lot of taxes on energy and stuff like that to try and reduce emissions Um, And you will make yourself dependent on countries like Russia, because they can supply natural gas, for example. And natural gas is a better source of energy than uh, petrol, for example, because it's more efficient to burn it. Uh, It it emits less carbon per joule of energy than coal, for example. Uh.
0: What about um, uh, wind turbines and electric cars? It seems like no matter where I go, when I was visiting in Germany three years ago, I was amazed. There and in the Netherlands, there were wind turbines in every direction that I looked. I'm actually seeing that here in the United States now, particularly in rural areas where there's a fair amount of wind. Is uh, is wind energy, and for that matter, um, uh, you know, electric cars? Are, are these uh, achievable goals or are they moving too quickly and actually doing more damage in the process to try to to make those the standard rather than the exception?
3: The, the technology is amazing. I mean, I like, I like technology in general, so it's also electric engines and also wind turbines. It's good to have them, but I don't think it's physically possible to replace uh, fossil fuels uh, at least by 2050. Um, There are a lot of issues. Uh, If you look at wind turbines, for example, um, well, there sometimes is wind and then sometimes there's no wind. And um, if you would, but you always need energy, you know, you cannot, uh, you need to somehow store the energy and how do you want to store it? If you would build giant batteries, where's all the lithium coming from or the other resources right. for those batteries. And, and then if you would, of course, there's also the possibility to you know pump water up to some higher place and then uh, let it out again later. I don't know how it's called in English. Um, But to do that, you would need to flood some valleys, basically. And if you try flooding valleys in Germany, they did it in the past uh, to get some water energy. But nowadays, the environmentalists would kill you because you're flooding some (laughs) ecosystems, you know. Right. (laughs) All those trade-offs. And it's the same with the cars electric cars they need lithium they need uh rare earth and if europe put a lot of money into this and a lot of regulation for example they want to outlaw combustion engines in new in new cars in the future it will just mean that all the resources all those limited resources for electric cars like all the rare earths and uh, stuff like that uh, cobalt whatever they will all be pulled to uh, to europe basically and all the other countries in the world they cannot afford this and they will just run with combustion engines so you're just basically you are improving your own carbon balance um, but, you're not doing anything for the global carbon balance at all. And, well, there's just one atmosphere, right? So,
0: We, we have about one minute left, Torben. I have to ask, will the, the proponents of these utopian policies, will they ever acknowledge reality and admit, this isn't working, and, and, and then we can start trying something else, or will they cling to this no matter what?
3: Uh, well, no, I don't think they will admit it. Um, because it's easier to always kick the can down the road. You can always say, oh, you know, um, my predecessors in office, they made some promises, which unfortunately cannot be kept right now, because, I don't know, you will always find a reason. You can say that Putin is attacking Ukraine now, and that's why you don't have the natural gas, which you relied on. Uh, There's always a reason. And then, at the same time, you can, put up some new promises for your, uh, you know, for the people who come after you to keep. It's always easy to promise something as a politician that will not happen while while you are in office, but that will happen in the future. And then these future politicians, they can do the same thing. They can cancel some promises, delay some promises, make new promises. So you never really have to admit that it doesn't work.
0: Okay. We are talking with Torben Halbe. He's a contributor for Young Voices and a Liberty activist based in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Torben, where can people find you on social media?
3: Well, you can find me on Twitter, just using my name, uh, Torben Halbe.
0: Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Andrew Donaldson, back to the show. Andrew is a familiar voice on this program, as well as uh, the host of his own show. And Andrew, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, toot your horn for us and and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do.
4: Yeah, the Ward's of the immortal Arne Anderson. I don't want to toot my own horn, but toot, toot. Uh, we're very <laughs> happy with our Heard Tell program, doing very well. Really appreciate the support on it. Um you can find out all the podcasting platforms also on YouTube, Facebook, through our radio partner, Big Talker. And of course, Ordinary Times, Ordinary Times.com. Really talented folks. I get to work there. They keep me grounded and keep me busy. Uh, very blessed, man. We get to do a lot of stuff like talk to you. Who's got it better than us?
0: Yeah, life is good. Life is good. Now, I'll admit, I've kind of had an ear to the ground when it comes to uh, a pending railroad strike. And I know a couple of times earlier this year, there's been talk of a railroad strike, but then it sounds like an agreement was reached and, and it's been averted. Now, word on the street is that uh, December 9th, there is a potential railroad strike coming. And um, because of your background, I know you have military background, as well as uh, I, I believe uh, you have some some background within within the transportation sector, this might just happen. Why is this significant? uh because we haven't really done this in
4: 40 some years there was a small csx stroke strike for two days back in 2005 that was just detailed to csx exclusively we haven't had a nationwide rail strike like this for you know 42 years my whole lifetime basically uh this is a very big deal it's really funny you mentioned it that way because we talked about this a couple of months ago you know i've some of us that know how these things go we've been warning about this these negotiations have been going on for three years i just talked to a friend of mine who's a correspondent for a major outlet in congress covers congress yesterday i Talked to him i was like is anybody in congress even talking about this he's like no and right before he came on he just seemed like oh everybody's paying attention to it now because president biden released this statement and blame on congress never underestimate our government's ability to completely ignore something until the last very minute they could (laughs) have dealt with this for some time before but they waited to the last minute now here we are
0: so when when we talk about how railroad strikes affect Everything. Let's, let's put this into perspective. I, I happen to live uh, pretty close to the train tracks, and I'm quite aware of when the trains are running and when they aren't. But uh, just how much of what we see um, entering commerce here in the U.S. gets to where it's being marketed or sold by train? Uh, 30%
4: of all com- commerce, goods, things like that, that all goes by rail. Now that number is big enough on its own, but it'll multiplies out. So imagine if we shut down the rail system, that also shuts down the ports because a lot of the rail- those containers y'all see on those rail cars, those are coming from the ports, and we already remember from last year when the ports get backed up, what happens there. Uh, this is going to have ripple effects through the entire economy. This would also remember in the United States of America, the freight rail owns the right of way, so that means if there's a freight rail strike, there's probably going to be problems with the passenger rail system at all. That's not a big deal out west, but that would be a major issue in the Northeast Corridor in DC. Uh, this has a lot of tentacles, it goes very deep in the economy, touches almost every part of the economy. This is bad. There's been estimates as high. I know uh, Senator Richard Burr, that's head of the Labor Committee, that's trying to avert this and got vetoed back in September when he tried to stop this. Uh, Bernie Sanders stopped that. Thank you, Bernie. Uh, he estimates it's going to be about a $2 billion a day hit on the economy. You just think about that number for a minute.
0: Well, thank goodness our economy is solid as ever. Otherwise, this might have me just a little bit worried.
4: Yeah, right in front of Christmas too now. The the that that December 9th date, that is the Rail Union set out and decided which date to use cuz each individual date comes off each individual union vote. They could have waited as late as the 23rd of December. You can imagine what that would have looked like in the media. They picked the ninth. That's the date this is going to start on. Happens now. Congress has a delineated power. That's why we're talking about congress they have delineated power to force arbitration of labor agreements we've seen this throughout history before reagan used it on the uh, air traffic controllers things like this to make them come to agreement here's where this gets really messy the agreement that the biden administration brokered in september that was just with the union heads and the companies that's what they'll be working off of in arbitration if they go to arbitration and biden's already warning that unless congress adds something in the legislation specifically to that package uh this package would not make anybody happy this would kick the can down the road it would avert a rail strike right before christmas and it's the only way probably now to avert a rail strike right before christmas it's going in the long term to make this much worse because now you just screwed the workers over for a short-term game there's not a lot of good answers right here because everybody let it go for way too long three years of negotiations we've been such a never with this thing kicking the can down the road always winds up this way and here we are
0: so there there are 12 12- railroad unions that are that are at play here and look i'm really not trying to find blame but but i want to know um if if anybody's being stubborn who is it
4: (laughs) a couple people uh there's 14 rail unions and they all have to agree because they'll have solidarity and not cross the picket line The Biden administration, when these negotiations, when they first got into office, kind of put their thumb on the scale in favor of the union heads because it's a pro-labor, you know, Democratic president, pro-labor. He put the finger on the scales to get the unions more leverage than they probably would have already had. That was problem number two. Number one, problem number two is the rail companies do not want to give in on the sick time. Now, this is where I think the workers have a very legitimate beef. And we'll come back to this in just a minute. Why? Wow, this is going to be so bad if it goes to binding arbitration. The September agreement does not have the sick days in it that the workers do. It has the pay raises, it has the benefits. Those are all top line news items. The thing that's got the workers in a bunch, they're not getting any sick time. They're not because remember, if you get sick time, if you've been in a corporate setting, company has to give you that. company doesn't want to give that up because they don't want to give up the control of their scheduling because these are complicated schedulings. But the rail workers don't have that. They're going to dig in on it. And if they arbitrate the agreement from September, unless Congress specifically puts it in there, they're still not going to get it even with binding arbitration. That's the time bomb in this thing, even if you avert the rail strike right now. Now they're just going to feel like everybody screwed them. They're not going to trust their union heads. They're not going to trust the government. They're not going to trust anybody. This thing could get even uglier long term if they don't deal with that main issue of the sick time.
0: You know, I, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid growing up, and I remember I had friends whose dads worked for the railroad, you know, Union Pacific and and whatnot. It was actually considered a pretty good career path. I mean, uh, these guys did very well. You know, they they worked hard, but uh, when they retired, I mean, they retired well. But uh, what I have been hearing, and the, again, this is secondhand because I, I don't know people personally who work in, in the railway industry. It is a very difficult industry, and, and part of it has to do with what you just talked about. Um, they work them around the clock. I mean, they work them throughout the calendar. Sick days are very hard to come by. Um, the pay is good, but uh, you, know, you, are, you are essentially owned by the company if, if you're on the, on the roster there.
4: Yeah, this is very hard work and it's long hours and it's a lot of travel. That's why the sick days is such a hang up because you can't take a sick, sick day in the middle of a six day road trip, right? You got to miss the whole trip. And so the company does have a bit of a point there. This is one of those things where time has moved on, though. The, the The way the railroad runs is and you'll hear people use the usual tropes about their profit margin. The profit margin ain't the issue here. The issue here is the way the railroads do business has changed and their labor practices has not. This was inevitable. This is why these negotiations, I'm gonna reiterate again, this negotiation has been going on for three years. They've known it's a problem. They don't wanna give in on this. The workers aren't gonna give in on this because the longer it goes, the more they feel like they're being done wrong. You can see how this snowballed in a really big hurry. And again, we haven't had one of these in 40 some years. This could get really ugly in a very tottery economy, even though it's a complex economy where some parts are good and some parts are kind of weird. This is not something you want to do right in front of Christmas, especially politically. They managed in September to kick it past the election, but this was the result of that. Now you're going to have to kick it again or deal with it, I suspect, based on the statement the White House put in, which is an incredible document. Y'all ought to listen to this piece of double speak. It's incredible. Joe Biden basically says, why did you make me do this? Um, It looks like they're going to kick it again and make Congress do it. This is going to get ugly, my friend. I think everybody needs to dog ear this one because we're going to be talking about it again next year, I think.
0: So what are we likely to see? Let's I'm, I'm just assuming worst case scenario, the strike begins, uh, you know, if, if they haven't reached that agreement by December 8th. And, and so December 9th, the strike begins. Where are we likely to first see evidence of this in, in our day to day lives? I suspect Congress
4: will step in here. I think the Republicans will make a show of it, though, because they'd love to hang this on Biden. Because, again, if this goes in next year, now they're in charge and they'll get the blame for it. I do think Congress forces arbitration here. If they did not, it would take a couple of weeks for you to actually see the effects of it outside of the sob stories. It would be a couple of weeks, but you would start seeing empty shelves and things like that in about a two to three week window because there's a buildup to that freight getting to the stores. Folks will notice this and there will be ripple effects for a long time. Even if it's only a one week strike, it'd be a couple of weeks to see it. You'd still see it even if they fixed this quickly.
0: Wow, what impact might this have on uh, fuel supplies? I mean, I'm hearing rumbles of of diesel shortages throughout the country. Um, yeah. d- does rail traffic affect you know the the shipping of, of fuel?
4: Almost all heating oil for the Northeast goes by rail. Almost all of it. Very little of it goes anywhere else because most of it's domestic. So that would be a big problem. Diesel and the other problem is diesel and heating fuel are refined together because it's similar process. So those two things, watch them because they're combined as far as transportation goes.
0: Wow. And of course, uh, you know, I, I know of uh, truckers right now are already feeling the, yeah. the pinch. Um, I know of at least one trucking company that uh, just last week I heard, you know, the, the owner was like, I can't afford to, to keep my yeah. trucks gassed up. He sold his company. He just he yeah. can't afford to do it. Owner
4: operators are taking a beating because they don't have the margins to survive something like this. And that's what you're going to see. It's going to be the small business, the owner operator, truck drivers. Those are the people that feel it 1st Ain't going to be the Walmarts and the big companies. It's going to be them. Keep your eye on them.
0: All right. We are talking with Andrew Donaldson. He is a Young Voices contributor, as well as the host of a couple of fine, fine shows of his own. Um, Andrew, I'm going to give you just about uh, 20 seconds here to go ahead and brag on your programs. Tell <laughs> people where they can find them.
4: Heard Tell Show, anywhere there's podcasting platforms. We're also broadcast on YouTube and Terrestrial Radio. We'd love to have you with us and ordinary-times.com. Great writers from across the board. And I'm
0: always happy to talk to you, my friend. Okay. Great to catch up with you. If I don't see you beforehand, have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too, sir. We'll talk soon, I hope.